Hello and welcome to The Garden Pod. This is episode five. This one I think is really good for teachers primarily and teachers who are interested in debates that exist within education. We cover a little bit of ground in this. I'm talking to um, Jack Campbell, who is a maths teacher here at Garden. We talk about a blog that he wrote, which was based around innovations from outside of school and how leadership can sometimes bring them in um, when there isn't a place for them. Um, and then my response to that blog. Uh, we then go on to a discussion around direct instruction versus inquiry-based practices. Uh, we have a bit of a debate, and I think we reach some good, healthy, common ground towards the end. Uh, this is one of the first ones we recorded, so forgive me, it's my fault. It's a little bit longer than perhaps I would have liked it to have been. Um, and it takes us a little bit of time to get going. I mean, we're in a, we're in a quite a controversial topic area, and we, we're quite nice to each other at the beginning. But I think by the end, we're, we're, we're talking really openly and really frankly, and I think that that's, that's healthy. And I hope you enjoy listening to both sides of that. Um, the other slight problem is that the microphone on my side goes out towards the end, um, so I become a bit fainter. So it's all good learning. Um, so don't look for a really polished podcast. Uh, what I'll hope you hear here is uh, a good talk and debate around important issues. And the learning certainly that I'll take from it is that um, we, we must be better at openly talking about disagreements within education. And if we do so, we're much more likely to find um, the middle ground, which is usually the best place to be. All right, Jack Campbell. Okay, so we're with Jack Campbell today. Jack is a maths teacher at Garden International School. Jack, how long have you been here? I've uh, been here for uh, just under two years now. Um, and a bit of a background to Jack at the school. He obviously works in maths and he also works with our Oxford, Oxbridge programme. Yep. Do you want to say a little bit about that and some of the successes we've had in the last... Yeah, so I, I kind, of, um, kind of take the lead with coordinating the uh, and supporting the students who are applying to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, we've done, we've been pretty happy with how things have gone the past couple of years. We've had four students get offers from Cambridge this year. We had four students the year before get offers from uh, Oxford and Cambridge. And, and, and that's something that I'm just uh, interested in generally. And you went to Oxford, right? Yeah, I went to Oxford, studied philosophy, politics and economics. Fantastic. So obviously I teach maths. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm about to say, yeah, okay. Uh, that's more my, my sort of, yeah. well, not economics though. Um, right, so I guess there's a, a semi-interesting story as to how this, this podcast sort of came about. Um, Jack writes a blog, which is called NW Maths, yep. which I'd highly recommend. How long have you been writing that for? Um, about a year, maybe, but sporadically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I write a blog more sporadically than, than Jack does, and it's, it's interesting that we both do, because... Why, I suppose that's the question. Why do you think it's important? Why do you write it? What's the, what's the point? Well, I, I enjoy writing a lot, and I don't get the opportunity to do as much writing as I did when I was at university, where I did lots of writing. Um, then when I did my master's, I really enjoyed the, the writing that I produced there. I, I really I, I pride myself on, on my writing, um, and it's... It's, it's the whole thing when if you write something you really have to think through it you've really got to to look for the holes in in your own argument uh, and look for your own strengths and weaknesses so it, it's 
it's a real, uh, and this is what I always say to the kids actually who are thinking of applying to Oxford and Cambridge, um, the writing an essay part of when you're doing your reading and your, your preparation for your um, personal statement, the most powerful thing won't be the reading, it's any writing that you do about that because it forces you to go through that thinking process. So that's the main reason why I do the blogging because it, it forces me to think a bit more. Yeah, and I, I think I could vouch for the same. You know, when I do write, which is pretty rare, and I'd love to do it more, and that's always an excuse, but I think it's that same thing. There's something quite satisfying about putting your arguments down on, on paper and structuring them and, and putting it out to the world. Um, and you do put it out to the world as a blog, and, and so does everyone who blogs. And I suppose where this podcast has come from, you wrote an article on... Um, I believe it was called We're Not Elite Cyclists, yep. um, which was really interesting. Um, and maybe you could explain the premise? Yeah, so um, it, it kind of came from the fairly well um, publicized idea of, of marginal gains and that uh, one reason for um, the uh, Team GB and Team Sky's uh, cycling successes was this idea of marginal gains uh, and, and aggregation of, of marginal gains over time. So making lots of tiny little tweaks that together um, produce kind of big results. And, and it, it was examining that and, and I said my kind of argument was that it clearly works. It's, you know, it's, uh, that I said that it's got a really nice, uh, it's very intuitive it's one that you can hear it, you can understand. There's some nice little stories attached to it about it's a nice, the nice soundbite. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. You talk about the, the yeah. mattresses or the clean team coming in and disinfecting yeah. the room before they go in. Yeah. Um, but perhaps it's these marginal gains. That's not where most people should be looking because most people aren't elite in their field. There's, uh, I think I call it significant gains or substantial yeah. gains to be made easier gains to be made in other areas. Yeah, and your assertion was that, and change, change yeah. me if I'm wrong, your assertion was that actually looking at something like marginal gains within the teaching profession is a little bit of a waste of time because what we should be doing is looking at the getting good, at, I think a quote was getting great at the basics or something like that, and uh, getting to those stages and concentrating on those things before we change tiny things like an elite cyclist would have to be because they have to make those things because they're all so good anyway. Yeah, and, and I guess the um, if you were an elite teacher, maybe then mm. marginal gains would be something to look at. But if you kind of do the, and I think I did this in the blog, if you work it out as a percentage of the teaching profession, it would be so small, you're probably not an elite teacher. I'm not an elite teacher. No, neither am I. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, and I, I sort of responded to this, and so it's to give the context, and you can actually read this. It's NW Maths WordPress. If you type that into Google, you yeah, can see it, right? Hopefully. And you can see the thousands of followers yeah. that Jack's got, uh, which is 999 more than me. Um, so I read, the, I read the article, and I, do, I genuinely believe it was a really interesting article, and I thought it was very, very well written, and actually I agreed with the assertions that were made in it. That, the, that this idea of marginal gains for teachers is, is really a bit of a dead end, is not really a path. But there was part of me that, that from a leadership perspective, found it really interesting and, and a little bit challenging because 
I kind of read it and I thought, well, I agree with what he's saying, but I'm just not sure the way that it was framed in terms of, I think you said at the start, and again, I don't want to misquote you, but you said at the start, you know, it's the dream kind of whole school incident. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, the, the school leader kind of standing up. And, yeah. and for the context, I, I lead in, uh, a little bit in the school and I do tend to do presentations and stuff like that. So I could kind of see through the mind's eye, me standing up, and, and I've never done this actually, but standing up and sort of talking about marginal gains and we're all gonna do these things and it's gonna be great. And I think my, my, the thing that challenged me there was I just couldn't picture where anybody in a school actually would have done that. Um, whereas I've talked about Brailsford and, and Team Sky and um, all the things that you can learn from outside of education, I just found that it was a bit difficult for me to, to, to sort of work out how a teacher or a leader would say, well, yeah, we should be changing cushions or we should be changing the pen on the whiteboard or we should be changing these tiny things. Because I just felt that that was a bit of a reduction of the, of the idea of innovation from outside um, into, into something that it wasn't. And I don't know if that was a narrative device or if that was an unfair challenge. Yeah, with, with blogs generally, so it's, it's, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, it's not... Um, this isn't autobiographical. I haven't sat there in a training session with someone coming up to the front. Um, I'm, I'm pretty surprised that you can't imagine someone doing that. Maybe you're quite privileged in that maybe you've worked for quite a while in a school where you have got yeah. people who are really thinking about this stuff. Yeah. If you've worked in schools where people maybe, for whatever reason, yeah. aren't or aren't able to or don't have time because they're, they're constantly fighting small fires. I can really imagine that happening. Yeah. Um, looking at my last place, well, the leadership was pretty good, but it was in a very different set of circumstances mm. here. I could imagine, oh, this looks great. Take it from here, you know, uh, tab A into slot B. Just sort of top down, boom, let's get this going. This sounds great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a fair point. Yeah, and I, and I never, like I said, that, that specific example hasn't come up. There were similar things where I was thinking, have we really thought about this? You, yeah. You're clearly doing this for the right reasons. Yeah. You think the idea is good. You're trying to get staff motivated. But have you really thought about this? Yeah. Um, so that was one side of it. And on the other side, yes, it's also a bit of a rhetorical device. Yeah. It's, it's a, not quite clickbait, but... It, be a, it frames the story yeah, very well. Exactly. And actually, if you read the article, it really does work as part of... Yeah, it's something that you can come back to, and it, it works. It works in that sense. So the the, the first point you there, I think it, that you made is a valid point. Can I imagine it? You know what? Actually, yes, I can. Yeah. Um, and I think I wrote in my response that maybe that's happening. And I can see how a top-down decision could do that. So I think part of my response was not irritation with what you'd wrote, but probably irritation from from a leadership perspective as how leaders in schools and leaders generally and maybe maybe even sort of looking and reflect on my own practice am i doing that is it is it something that leaders are doing and should they be doing it and well actually no i don't, you know I, I feel so strongly that they shouldn't and i feel so strongly that um, we should never have a them and us kind of divide yeah. between the leadership yeah. and the school and that sometimes when arguments are reduced down it tends to lead more to them and us yeah. And, and I see that, and I see how damaging it is. And I, and I think that was my that was my sort of interesting thing. But the, I suppose the lesson there is, a that if we can imagine it, we as leaders should never ever try and do that. Um, but b I think also to generally for for maybe teachers to have an understanding of 
of the way in which we might approach change, for example. Yeah. So, you know, good change management is about taking lots of different ideas, using a bottom-up approach, trying to gather information and, and opinion, and then build that up. So if we were going to use Sky, for example, we definitely wouldn't use marginal gains. We'd use some of the... Um, uh, you know the the whole Browsford's idea about yeah. team and high performing teams and orchestra conduction and distribution of leadership, yeah. which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if you've got. A, yeah, well, I, I think I was. Um, so yes, there were there was aspects of I couldn't have written that without kind of bringing some ideas about leadership in, but given that's not really my role at the moment, I wasn't yeah. necessarily. I wasn't coming at it from a, um, a leadership perspective. It was more a kind of semi-philosophical, that's the wrong word, but kind of, um, yeah, it, it was almost, it was just here is, I was kind of presenting a case yeah. generally rather than coming specifically from a, a leadership yeah. perspective. Just I, presenting the case to someone who thinks about education. Your, your audience is teachers and potentially leaders. Yeah. Well, it will be, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, and all sorts. So I suppose, I guess, you know, when you can say, I can imagine a leader standing at the front doing, doing the marginal gains, this is going to be amazing, right? Get out there and all go and have a protein shake. I can imagine a situation where a teacher will read um, something along those lines of, oh yeah, yeah, our, our leadership's terrible because they're doing that. Yep. And that's, I think that's the sort of the reductive nature that kind of worries me a little bit. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons yeah. I kind of react. Yeah, um, and, and the other big point of the argument, uh, which was kind of secondary, is that I do think a massively underrated part of teaching is are you good at explaining stuff? Mm-hmm. Which was kind of the, I said, that's the significant gain. Yeah. Um, obviously, relationship with kids super important, your subject knowledge is super important, but a really important thing yeah. is just, are you a good explainer? So and that's, that a, that's a nice segue, actually, into where we wanted to go, where we wanted to go next. But I think to frame the discussion we've just had and, and some learning, hopefully, that we can all take from that is, I think that that potentially could have turned into a bit of an argument between, you know, you could have a yeah. kind of blog off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I reply and I'm cross about it. And, and you, you see that all the time. And you see it all the time. And you see it all the time between teachers, yeah. on educational forums. And I just think it's so unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and I, I wrote to Jack and I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you. Would you mind if I responded? And Jack very graciously went, yeah, of course. No problem. And I was so impressed with that. I was so impressed that I'm publishing stuff, I'm putting an opinion, and I'm open to... A different opinion, which, as we've discussed, sort of has merit to it and yeah. your bits. Are, and, uh, and having that discussion is so healthy. And it's something that perhaps we should be encouraging within our institution yeah. and within education generally. And the more, the more we can sort of have these arguments or not arguments, debates, discussions, I think the healthier we'll all become. Yeah, which will lead us on to our next, right? Yep. Um, the ability to explain stuff. Uh, now, we could let's let's call this direct instruction, yeah, uh, because this is the term that gets bounded yeah. around a lot and seems to be controversial for some reason. I'm not I'm not entirely sure why, but can you you're you, you're quite sort of genned up on this. So can you just explain to us what we mean by direct instruction? Um, so I guess by direct in, instruction, let's kind of reduce it 
to its, its simplest form, uh, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the form that I, I would always support, it's just, just tell them. Just tell the kids stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not a case of them going away and working it out themselves. Just tell them. Yeah. And that, that's probably the simplest way I can describe it. Now, there is more to it than that, and I'm not saying that's the version that I always support in every case, but that's a decent enough approximation of, of what I mean when I talk about direct instruction. So, if I may add to it, um, built around the idea that as a teacher, as an adult, and as somebody who has studied a particular thing for a considerable yep. amount of time, you are you have a degree of expertise yep. within that subject. So your subject math, maths, maths, maths. <laughs> your subject maths, which will allow you to instruct, uh, help, inform a a student or an adult, yep. anybody, um, key things that will make them better. Yep. At it. Just that transmission, yep. and there's value in that. Yep. Right? And that the best way of that transmission is often teacher talk. Yep. Not always, but often it's the teacher talking to the student. Okay, and um, do you mean by that teacher talking at the front of the lesson to 24 kids or, or 25 kids, or do you mean kind of one-on-one or? Um, both, and, and I think, I think a, uh, a caricature of it might be a teacher stands at the front wearing a, a cap and gown and a, yeah. holding a, a meter ruler and a chalkboard. And I do think that's a part of it, yeah. standing at the front, but it's by no means all of it. Yeah. Um, and a, a big part is, yeah, what, like you say, one-on-one, um, maybe small groups, but it, it, it is the teacher leading that discussion for, for much of it. So, and, and this is backed up by plenty of research that talks about yeah. sort of direct instruction has been an effective tool for learning. Um, most people are familiar with Hattie, and Hattie sort of puts his biggest effect size, and direct instruction is up there yeah. um, with, with some of the biggest effect sizes um, for progress. So why is it controversial? What's the... So uh, this goes back, so you were just talking about blogging earlier. Yeah. Okay, and one thing I didn't realise until I got onto Twitter, and until I, um, until I started blogging and reading up on, on education a bit, I was kind of under the impression from when I did my PGC and my teacher training that kind of this big, if you weren't doing this sort of big co-constructivist teaching operation in your classroom, you were doing something wrong. Mm. And I was thinking, well, I tried that, it doesn't work. I tried being more direct, it does work. When I look at the very best teachers at the school which I was working at when I was training, mm-hmm. it's like the ones that the kids like because they're learning rather than the kids like because they're soft. Yeah. You know? yeah. These are the, the uh, ladies and gents who are doing this. And, mm. and so initially, I, because of the way I've been trained, I, I thought, well, this is just the way that you teach I'm doing something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I started um, exploring all the blogs and things, I thought, well, there's actually a lot, of, a lot of people who disagree with this. So I think there is a real debate about the, I mean, it's, it's characterised as often traditional v. progressive. Yes. I don't think those labels are particularly helpful. No. Um, I think in some ways direct instruction is actually quite progressive now, given what I just said, that, that there's a, I wouldn't say that the hegemonic view of teaching is that it's progressive, but I don't think one's yeah. more traditional or more progressive than the other, but 
use those labels just for the, the sake yeah. of argument, which may be part of the problem. Um, it is controversial because a lot of people say that it's, it deprives, uh, so they use the example of you know, when scientists are researching, they'll be doing lots of group work, lots of exploring different areas, lots of experimentation. Um, so students aren't getting the chance to go through that process if they're having someone telling them. That's just one example. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely sort of a, a label that gets attached to me more, more often than not would be based around some of those quote-unquote progressive yeah. Techniques, um, inquiry-based learning, project-based yeah. learning, challenge-based learning, co-construction uh, co of learning. Uh, this idea that you can Google anything. Yeah. Um, you don't need to be taught any knowledge because you can do that, which I think is just utter nonsense. Um, and this idea of um, that we have to discover all learning for ourselves. Yeah. Um, now, I would say that I'm a proponent of some of that, and I think that where students are able to explore um, explore pathways and personalised pathways, then you are much more likely to lead to sort of heavy levels of engagement. One of the other factors that, that is very important to learning, and I'll, I'll qualify yeah. that in a minute, is, um, is high levels of engagement. Um, I also think that we can talk about shallow learning and deep learning. And, and not, none of what I'm just about to say means that you can't get yeah. this through direct instruction. But shallow learning and deep learning. And what we, what we have seen from numerous um, anecdotal evidence, but also research evidence, and Hattie even talks about this as well, is that deep learning will often occur when you can make meaning, meaningful links for yourself. Whereas shallow learning will much be, much be more likely as a result of pure rote, which I recognize that you're yeah. not claiming the yeah. direct instruction is. So I guess my point is that we sh and I don't think you're arguing this, but I think this is where the controversy seems to be. It seems to be that you either do one or you do the other. And I think that you, to, have, to have good inquiry, you need knowledge and you need to be able to construct your ideas from a, from a sort of solid foundation yeah. and base. And if you don't have that, that's very problematic. And I don't think you can find everything out through inquiry. Um, but for me, it's, it's a combination of tools for direct instruction will be effective and certainly will be very effective for some kids. Um, but some kids won't. Some yeah. kids hate to listen to a teacher stand yeah. in front and I'll switch off. And imagine if they do that in every single lesson yeah. they go to during the day. Um, but by the same token, you know, a project-based learning school, I think you've got exactly yeah. the same issue. You know, it's just one style of learning where they go around and they go around and they go around. And actually, for me, it's this combination of you, you have got a, a teacher with a wealth of knowledge that can explain and explore and ask great questions. And that's, that's at the root of, I think, of both. Yeah. Both definitely, definitely. Ask great questions and utilise those answers and questions to allow the kid to explore a personalised pathway or to utilise their own expertise to actually sit down and I'm going to explain this with you. I'm going to see if you get it. I'm going to explain and then I'm going to test that later on. Learning's going to occur. Yeah, in I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in this idea of, of personalised pathways yeah. because I'm not, I'm not sure I always buy it. Mm. So I... Um, because there's... So what, what do you mean by personalised pathways first, just to check that okay, we're... So I, I think something like maths is more problematic, so I'll start yeah. with that. I think maths is, is and there's, actually there's plenty of studies that show that rote learning and maths is actually pretty effective. But I also think rote learning is, I think is, so when I hear rote learning, yeah. I think that's learning with zero understanding. Yes. Um, but I would also say there is 
So I would say rote learning is kind of writing out 2x3 yeah. equals 6 yeah. with no idea what that means. Yeah. I'd say there's a level of learning that's different than that that's kind of um, just know, knowing. I know now 2 times 3 is 6. Yeah, so I would, I would put rote learning in that Right. But what I am, so I, I know now that 2 times 3 is 6. What I can also do is take a step back and reason through why 2 times 3 is 6. I can imagine... Um, two little groups of three, and then all together they make six. But I, th I think, I would say rote learning is a bad thing, because there's no, maybe very occasionally, you, you might want something learned by rote, but I can't really think, yeah. so I can't like, think of an we, example. We've kind of gone off the original yeah. so I will get back to yeah. that book in a minute. Yeah. Um, so, set times tables, great example. Um, is there value in rote learning times tables? Because you just know, you know, seven times eight is fifty-six. Yep. Bang! Yeah, that gives me a certain. It's impressive. That. That's the one people always forget as well. <laughs> Thank you. I chose that one. Yeah. Don't ask me that one. Um, it, that gives me a certain kind of agility with numbers, which just allows me to access other yep. things. Um, now I can't find many other examples where I want things to learn. My subject history, I don't want the kings and queens of England to learn. But why? Um, because I don't really remember it, and I don't know where. No, okay, no, I don't. I don't want to spend a huge. Let me rephrase that. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time in my classroom with kids learning that, because I think that how applicable might that be later on? How deep will that learning be? Um, I don't think so. So if my entire curriculum is built around learning those facts, and then I test facts and do very little with them, exactly your example. Yeah. If there's no application, then I don't want but I, I think things like, and I'm, I'm not a history specialist, I'm someone who really likes history and I kind of managed to turn my degree into a bit of a history degree. Um, but I think one, one thing that a lot of students do suffer from is just, I think by knowing those facts, yeah. list of kings and queens, yeah. um, you are then able to just make better sense of so much that you read, for instance. Um, and then a better sense of the, the history that you're learning. If you know that the, um, I don't know, that Henry VIII then gave, then it was um, Edward, then it was um, Mary, then Elizabeth. Yeah. If you were able to put those, those Tudors together and before yeah. that Henry VII, and yeah. so on either side, yeah. um, it, it just, and then you're able to, to see the word Elizabethan and say, okay, Elizabethan, right. Before that, it was, it was Bloody Mary. Okay, so now I can begin to put together, we've got the, um, oh, this is when, when all that stuff was going on with the Pope and, and the, the Reformation. And um, I think that just allows you to, to and I, like I said, I say this not as a, uh, as a history specialist, but firstly, it allows you to kind of build up that mental picture better. Yeah. But also, I think it's something that a lot of people, a lot of more inverted commas, well-read people, and that can mean different things, would do know, do take for granted, and a lot of literature, um, both historical literature and literature generally, is based on the idea that people know this. Mm. So that opens up a number of things, doesn't it? Not one is the whole cultural literacy Ex Yeah. You, to access your culture, to access sort of all of the things that, and the links that is made within your culture and why you've got to where you've got to, you need a solid base. Yeah. That. I, I get that. And I, I don't necessarily disagree. Yeah. In fact, I don't disagree yeah. with it. 
Um, I think one of the issues that you've got, especially history is a nice example, and congratulations on your Tudor time, yeah. and that wasn't bad at all. Um, it's a nice example because, yes, you can, you can learn these things. In schools, what we find, though, is that this idea that once, you know, this rich narrative of history, so I start in year seven at 1066, yeah. and I end in year nine yeah. at 1900, and we've taught it, so therefore they know it. Yeah. And they don't. Yeah. Because yeah. they can't remember yeah. what happened two weeks ago, let alone, yeah, yeah. Let alone the exact order yeah. of monarchy. My second issue with it is a lot of kids find that extremely dull. Some of yeah. them love it. Yeah. Some of them it's fascinating. And it sounds, you know, you've got some memory and those stories click and they link and they make them. Yeah. But if they are so disengaged by learning the kings and queens of England at the start, then they're never going to start to make the, the links between, um, you know, Bloody Mary, King Henry VIII and the Reformation, you know, religious intolerance and, and so on. And then I guess that gets to the, the, the third point about personalised pathways, yeah. which brings us back on to back onto yeah. the, the original question you asked about five minutes ago. Um, history for me is a study of stories and narratives in the past which are very interesting, which can help us to inform the world around us, right? Now, within a bracket, so let's say we're looking at the Tudors. Here, I think, we would need some base knowledge for what the Tudors look like, if that's yep. what we're yep. It feels ridiculous sitting in Malaysia talking about the Tudors. Uh, but let's just say for argument say that you need some base knowledge and I think some direct instruction there is really valid because you know they could go and google it and find it but it's going yeah. to take a long time and actually there's some key base knowledge that you want but that's what I'm talking about personalised pathway right now some people might be really interested in persecution based on Catholicism yeah. that might float their boat and get and get them into the, the witch hunts that might yeah. get some others how women were treated in Tudor times medicine within Tudor times yeah. and how um, how different that was and how um, what their approaches were and the reaching and the bloodletting yeah. and all that kind of stuff um, what cities and buildings and villages look like the economy these are all interesting aspects of history which can promote individual interest and a personalised learning pathway, which if you've got an expert in the room and, a, and, and some clever setup, you can allow sort of a more inquiring project-based um, thing to go into those different aspects whilst having your base knowledge through maybe something like direct instruction, not rote, so I don't think that would work in this case. Um, so I guess that sort of brings it, brings it back round because I think then you're still exploring the importance of history. You're still developing the skills of analysis, questioning, research, storytelling, potentially presenting, yeah. and any other plethora of things that, that we can talk about, but you're not basically holding them prisoner to a rigid, linear curriculum. And I think that's where history, perhaps for me, is, is a good example. Yeah, so a few things. That I, th I think it would require, something like that would require uh, the, the, the Tudor's example there. You would need someone who really knew their stuff for that, to, to be able to do more than just kind of they use leeches for, for bloodletting to actually get a lot out of because you know history of medicine is a very rich discipline to, to choose the example you've chosen. Yeah, the teacher's not the fount of all knowledge. No. As long as the teacher knows where to direct them to and what resources might be available to them and they've got some good questioning techniques and the kids they, they're using that for the kids to work out okay is this information reliable that I'm getting from me? How do I test that where this is coming from? The, the exploratory yeah, I think maybe maybe this is a problem with with my practice. When I 
I've always been, even with some of the best students that I've worked with here, quite underwhelmed by the quality of research that kids have been able to do. And I'm as, as, as prepared to say that might well be my fault and the, uh, the guidance that I gave them with that research. Um, so I so think what's that, our argument there? We don't do it because they're not very good at it. No, um, it's that... So what, an example I'm thinking, I, I asked students to go and research... Um, they, they were all going to research different philosophers. They chose their philosopher. Mm. They did not have... This was for enrichment. Yeah, their knowledge of the discipline of philosophy was not good enough to make sense of the arguments. And so much they were clearly saying these words, and it was so... I felt it was so superficial. And and then I was thinking, okay, at first I was like, these guys aren't very good at research. And I thought, well, I I have to take some accountability here. It's not like one or two of these weren't very good. A lot of them was. And there, I think there, I think that's where we've just hit our... Our middle ground, yeah. because what you're talking about there is clear misconceptions that are coming out because of a lack of base, yeah. Which is what, in my example, I was trying to give with the tutors. You need base understanding where perhaps some direct instruction is is a perfectly effective form. Because without that, you're right. I agree yeah. completely. You get to surface level pretty mediocre sort of. Result. So what I was thinking is next year when I run a similar task. I'm going to pick a single philosopher and I'm going to give them the, the key points and really do a fair bit of kind of Socratic discussion mm. on that with them. And then I'm going to give them an aspect of this really just to get them to go deep into one area. And, you know, I say I'm going to give them. They can choose. I'll, I'll drop a list. And they can choose. Right? They can choose. But after I've really built them up to... Yeah. Um, to, to be, so I'm, I'm just thinking I might do utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill, yeah. really build them up with that. They're not going to be going away and finding out what utilitarianism is. I'm going to be telling them, here's, here's act utilitarianism, here's rule utilitarianism, some of the big names, what they said. Now you go away once you've been given these key information, be given a bit of a timeline, going from, uh, from Bentham to Mill to some of the more modern guys like Hooker and, and going from there. So... Um, yeah, I will. There will be an element of personalization towards the end, but yeah, I, th- I think that's where we agree. Yeah, and De- that's definitely there. Because you're talking there about sort of 16 to 18 years, yeah. so we're getting to that stage. And I mean, that's some pretty complex stuff they took. It is hard. Like, really yeah, hard. it is hard. But they're getting to that stage and they don't have the tools. Yeah. Or the tools aren't, aren't honed enough. Yeah. Yet, that's what I'm afraid, probably not. But. Uh, they're not there enough yet to be able to give them the access and probably ask the right questions uh, so, about yeah. some of the research or have the desire to to explore that enough. That's, that's the other thing, that it was a broad liberal arts class, yeah. many of which whom will have been interested in philosophy. Some of them would have been economists who had very little interest in, in philosophy. So th- there is that side of things. Yeah. Um, I think with the personalised learning stuff, one of the, the things I do, how personalised do we make it? Because do we say to students in year nine, choose a book, and, and again, I'm not an English teacher, mm. I'm, I'm not saying this is what's done or isn't done, mm. choose a book and discuss it, mm. or do we say we are going to be reading these great works? Yeah. We, so that's not personalisation. So, so where, where does it stop? And I know you're not saying 
you're not for a second. So why, why do we have to choose? Is my, is why, isn't there room for both of those, both of those things? Yeah, there, there is, but it's, it's where at some point you've, you've got to come down somewhere mm-hmm. and there'll be, if you're doing more of one, you'll be doing less of the other completely. Mm-hmm. And it's how, how much do we, I guess it's how much do we personalise yeah. things. So that, and that's a different discussion. And that's yeah. really hard to get right. But I think if you're willing to accept that actually within a good curriculum and within good learning experiences that we want to create variety. Yeah. You know, if we just go through Shakespeare for three years, that you're not going yeah. to interest. Yeah, you completely, completely. Um, if you give the choice of doing some, we're going to do a bit of that, but then we'll look at some manga or this different yeah. genre, and you can explore that through your own pathway. But then we come back together, and we're going to look at uh, mice and men. Uh, for, you know, yeah. again, I'm not an institute yeah. either, but but I can see value in all of those because by putting those together, you're going to hit yeah different kids at the at the right time, and hopefully there'll be some happy points for, for yeah along the way. And the other the other thing that's kind of running alongside this, and I'm. I wonder, and I don't know the answers, I wonder about the extent to which the stuff that, so you're saying you'll have a lot of kids who are, who you're missing with some of this stuff, and I don't know the answers. Would a really good teacher, maybe one of these elite teachers, be able to engage these kids in whatever? If they know the material and they've got the personality to carry, carry it out, would they be able to? And I don't know the answer to that. My, my gut, I don't know the answer to it either. I know I can't. No, um, yeah, same. I, I know that... I think any teacher who claimed that would have to have some pretty, pretty significant evidence. Because yeah. I think there would definitely be an arrogance there. You know, I, I'm well aware that there will be students that I teach you who don't like me, and my, my particular style doesn't work. Yeah. I can accept that. That's fine. We bump into a lot of people, yeah. and I know that certain things will work. So if we can all recognise that and vary that, we're probably more like yeah. teachers. I guess the final thing that we, we're, we're sort of going a bit longer than we expected, but it's an interesting chat. Um, let's take one of the fun things that I, you know, it's a subject that's quite dear to my heart, that sometimes deep knowledge isn't necessarily the outcome that you, that you are particularly looking for. So if we take uh, one of the programmes that we have here um, with the large-scale inquiry right now, I, I would recognise that certainly through the discussions that we've had, a criticism of that programme and what the kids were learning there could well be, but you know what, we were doing some STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths, and many of the kids didn't really get a, a deep understanding of STEM. Yeah. Um, and that would, that would fit quite nicely into what we're talking yeah. about. Right? So you talk to a lot of those kids and their, their, their engineering understanding or their scientific method yeah. understanding didn't, didn't improve. Yeah. And I would be the first to say that that was probably the case. Um, but that was never the goal of that inquiry. Yeah. So if you looked at the learning goals of that inquiry, they were to go through a process to try and solve a problem, um, to be able to communicate a process of learning. They were the, they were the kind of the two, yeah. and to develop an investigative yeah. question. Now, on within that thing that we did, you could add any number of other kind of learning goals. Yeah. You could add another hundred of yeah, all yeah. the ones this particular element of science or, or how forces act on structures or how you compose a soliloquy or yeah. <laughs> you know there could be any other million. but I guess the goal there was not really to actually get them to to, to go into STEM maybe give them a taste yeah. and maybe get them a bit interested in it, but more the importance of a question and develop and I think on that we have evidence that they produce some really good uh, and stuff. to me that's what I I got that this year whereas last year I was, I was kind of it was my first inquiry is mental <laughs> it's crazy and I was just like I was kind of so taken aback by ev- in a 
good and, and bad ways. It's, it's, it's overwhelming, that would be the word. I was like, what, what are they learning here? And I think this, this time I, I think it was, it was either explained better or I was just more able, because I was able to frame yeah. my knowledge on, on what has gone before. Yeah. It's about the, that it is about the process and it's, yeah. if, you know what, if they learn a bit of STEM, great. Okay, but that wasn't the primary goal. Yeah, exactly, and, and, and that's what I got this time. So you can have, I would argue that you can have learning which is skill transferable. I know some, some, some people don't believe that skills can be transferred between domains, yeah. but we won't get into yeah. that. Um, you can have skills learning which is transferable, which doesn't necessarily create that depth of knowledge, but one would hope that they could go in and develop questions a little bit better. The next discussion yeah. they have on question development within economics, science, history, geography, English maybe to, to an extent, maths even, yeah. Yeah? Um, should, in theory, at least be headed by that. Uh, this idea that our process of learning is, is important, that we recognise where we're making mistakes, that we learn from those, and we say, is important. I, I think that can be transferable. So the goal of, of that was about that, not about the knowledge yeah, base. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think there's, that, that's quite an interesting sort of yeah. idea. And again, it's a, there's a spectrum about how yeah. much, where, where, do you, where do you decide your, both your subject and also your, yeah beliefs and your teaching practice, where do you fit along that spectrum? Yeah, and, I, and I would say that... And that's just... Where yeah. you are, right? I mean, I certainly know that my argument is really, I would not want to see that every week or day of the year. Yeah. You know, I, I want the next week to be some... getting down into some... Uh, I mean, Machiavellian prints yeah. in detail. And that's cool. Yeah, and, and I guess going back to this whole blog, it's... I know I have a tendency to... And I think everyone does. It's, it's kind of confirmation bias as well. Yeah. I often look at things through a certain lens that agree with it, kind of the way that I'm doing it, rather than, and it's, it's, it's impossible not to have that, but you, one has to try. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the blogging and stuff comes in as well. And yeah, I don't know when that, the last time I read a blog that I don't really agree with yeah. was, and that's, that's not great either. No, I, well, I, I'm the same, do that, we must be careful of it, but I was listening to a series on BBC um, called The Educators, and um, it's a podcast around uh, you know, Ken Robinson, um, and a few of the sort of big names in education talk around yeah. And one of them was Daisy, you know, the surname? Chris Christodola. Sorry, not Daisy. It's Daisy. Daisy Christodola, yeah. Who's, who's very into this kind of fact-based and sort of knowledge-based. And I deliberately was listening to her because she, she challenged many of the things that I said. But I'm glad I did because I understood at the end of that much more about where her argument was coming from and, and yeah. was deep-rooted. I agree, disagreed with much of it, but I agreed with more of it than I had done beforehand, if that made sense. Yeah. There were clips and stuff in there. But you know what? My, my understanding of that was surface level before. And now that that's been explained, whilst I've got problems with this, this, and this, I really that's been explained see it. by direct instruction. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but, exactly. yeah. I can see. It. Yeah, well, of course. Um, I, I think the other thing to remember with Christodoulou and a lot of people who are arguing similar things to her as well is that they are focused on a very different school to the school that GIS is yeah, as course. well, and that's. But it's not good or bad, and maybe, maybe, like I said, you have to think about your subject. You have to think about the um, 
asking about your personality, maybe you've got to think about the kids. Well, you do have to think about the kids that are in front of you as well and what, what they need and what they're lacking in. And what we will finish with in, in those socioeconomic situations may well, may well inform what's more likely yeah. to work with in the Yeah, completely. Well. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. And I suppose I like your point there, you know, that, that podcast is direct instruction. Yeah. But I think because of that direct instruction gives me a base of knowledge, I can now inquire yeah. more effectively. Yeah. And I can go and read and I can find, I can be an autonomous learner yeah. now because I've got that base. Yeah. And I think that's a lovely example yeah. of what we're just talking about. Yeah.